God, this morning we praise you. We're so uh, grateful to come again and be with your people and be filled with the joy and hope of what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. God, to be reminded again of the grace that we have from him, of the life that we have from him. God, that he was willing to come and enter history for us to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise from the dead. God, we are excited today to be retuned again to the real story of life, to the real story of life that comes from your word. God, to be shown again the wonders of who you are and the wonders of what you've done for us. And so as we open your word, God, we're excited to learn more about Jesus. We're excited to look at our Savior in your word and to have our hearts expanded to know him and love him and trust him. God, we pray that as we hear more about Jesus today, that you would fill us with a love for Jesus, that you'd fill us with a desire to want to praise him and honor him with our lives. Lord, that you would bring us to the place where Jesus Christ is the most loveliest person, the most loveliest thing that we could know, could, could see. God, we ask that you would open up the eyes of our heart this morning to see the, the beauty and the, the goodness that you have for us in your word. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen. At this time, uh, feel free to take a seat. And if the kids are here and you've been checked in, you can release to the back. And if you haven't been checked in yet, you're a kid, you can still do that in the lobby at this time. And I want to invite you all to open your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We just read out loud together uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And uh, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Uh, maybe you're somebody who's heard uh, the phrase before that life is found in Jesus. Maybe you've heard someone say that, or maybe you've heard, heard that around somewhere, that life is found in Jesus. But if you're honest, uh, you're not really sure what that means. You know, what exactly does it mean that life is found in Jesus? Maybe that sounds like sort of a vague, nebulous term, phrase to you. You just maybe can't quite pinpoint what, what you would mean by saying that life is found in Jesus. Well, this morning, my hope is for all of us to see that we are far more dependent upon Jesus than we could ever imagine. Uh, We need Jesus far more than we would ever dream that we need him. Uh, There have been a number of people that have done a uh, kind of a thought exercise where they've considered what would happen if overnight the entire world lost power, lost electricity. Uh, Think about how scary that would be. I know there's a few of you who think that you could probably survive, but I doubt it. Um, Instantly, there's no way to keep your food good. Uh, There's no water pumps pushing water through our sewage systems. And, you know, you you go up to your fridge and you get a little water. Yeah, you can't do that, all right? And then maybe you're trying to boil boil your water, but then you turn around and realize that your stovetop won't work and your microwave won't work. And so you're stuck, you know, trying to, trying to use a fire. Now here, think about this. Your money. Where's your money? It's in the electronic web out there somewhere in the space. And now you can't get to your money. You can't use a credit card. can't use a debit card. And obviously, worst of all, let's be honest, this is the worst thing. Our computers and our phones would not work. There would be no internet. Uh, it would be a scary sight. I'm not going to lie. Um, to to, to kind of consider how much 
we have come to depend upon electricity is hard to imagine. It's hard to believe that there are so many different aspects of our life that are dependent upon power that comes from outside of ourselves, a power source that is, that is not internal to us. And this morning, as we look at Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is drawing us to marvel at the fact that Jesus Christ is a power source. Jesus Christ is someone who brings life into this world, and that you and I cannot live without Jesus. We cannot exist without Jesus. We are so utterly dependent upon Jesus. Um, I, I would bet that if, if I asked you to go home and, and write down like all the ways that you are dependent upon electricity, I bet you have no problem doing that. You could probably come up with a, a hundred things, you know, however, a super long list of things of ways that you are dependent upon electricity. Well, my, my goal, my hope this morning is that we would all be able to leave here and have that same kind of mentality when we think about Jesus. That the, the, the idea that life is found in Jesus would be something that we actually understood readily and that we could actually come up with a list of things that would show us why it is that life is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at six aspects of the life of Jesus from uh, Colossians chapter 1. Six aspects of the life of Jesus. First, we live through his divine life. We live through his divine life. I want to read uh, verses 15 and 16 again. So this is Colossians 1, 15 and 16. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, it's almost as if somebody Paul, grabbed onto Paul when he got to the end of verse 14, and, and Paul had mentioned the Son being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption. And it's almost as if someone grabbed Paul and said, wait, 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 wait a second. Can you tell me a little bit more about this Jesus guy? Can, can you tell me who Jesus is? And then Paul launches into this beautiful description of who Jesus is. Notice as we look through this passage today, it doesn't talk about us at all. There's one small little phrase where, where it kind of talks about us when it talks about the church. But the whole thing this morning is about Jesus. It is he that we're talking about. Him, 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 all throughout uh, this morning. And the first thing that Paul says is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say that Jesus is created in the image of God like we are as humans. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't even say that Jesus is in the image of God. No, he says that Jesus is the image of God. If you want to see God, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know who God is, the only place you can look and see God is in Jesus. He is the image. He is the image. Now, when I was a kid, uh, people used to tell me that I looked like my dad. And for whatever reason, I wasn't particularly excited about that. Um, but now that I'm, now I've grown up and I have kids of my own, I, there's this interesting phenomenon that I've noticed. Uh, we have this weird infatuation with trying to figure out who the baby looks like. Uh, people will sit around for an hour talking about all the different features, you know, oh, the earlobe looks like the mom or the eyebrows look like the dad. And I'm going to be honest, like half the time, I really feel like people are just making this stuff up. But there is something to it, Right. 
Like you, you expect, you expect for a child to look like their parents because there's something in the parents that have passed on into the child. Here's what uh, Paul is, is t- teaching us in this passage this morning. He's saying the, the reason that the Son of God, the reason that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Son, what makes him the Son is that he is the exact representation of the nature of God. That whatever it means for God the Father to be God the Father, Jesus images it perfectly. He, he's not just a resemblance. He just doesn't, he doesn't have a few faint features of the Father. No, the Son of God has eternally been imaging the Father because they share the same divine nature, the exact same divine nature. Now, uh, Paul continues, and he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of all creation. In Paul's day, the firstborn son uh, was the person in the family who had the right to inherit all that the, the, uh, the father had. And so when Paul's talking about Jesus as the firstborn, he's saying that Jesus has a right over all creation. Jesus has the authority over all creation. We sang in the song this morning that he, he is the alpha and the omega. Jesus is both the alpha, the beginning, but he's also the end. He's also the inheritance. He's also the one who receives everything. He has divine right over all things because he is the firstborn. And the reason we know that's what uh, Paul's talking about, the reason we know he's not saying that Jesus was somehow created is because of what Paul says next in verse 16. He says, for by him all things were created. So in other words, if there's anything that was created, if there's anything in all creation that was ever created, it has been created through Jesus Christ. For, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul is saying that Jesus, the Son of God, is so very God of very God that we can look at Jesus and say he is creator. He is our maker. He is the one who is the author of life. Uh, now, I want to be clear in emphasizing Jesus in this way, that in no way by, by emphasizing Jesus in this passage is Paul trying to diminish the fact that God the Father or God the Spirit have eternally, co-eternally existed as the, the one being of God. So that's not what Paul's point is. So why is it that he's emphasizing Jesus in this particular passage? Why is it that he's trying to prove to us that Jesus is God? Well, the fact that Jesus entered into history, the fact that Jesus was actually born into history, creates a temptation for us. There's a temptation for us to, 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 to approach Jesus from below and to think that Jesus is merely a man, to think that Jesus is only a man. And so Paul is trying to help us see, no, 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 we, we, we don't approach Jesus from below. We approach Jesus from above. That this one, yes, he stepped into history. Yes, he became a man, but he has eternally been very God of very God. The, the same baby who was nursing on uh, his mother Mary was at the same time God. That as he was upholding the universe according to his divinity, he was also depending upon Mary and Joseph in his humanity. This is um, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, maybe maybe you're thinking, I don't know. You know, I don't know about that. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe what Paul's trying to say is that Jesus is just some sort of agent of creation, or maybe he's like the, you know, the, the pixie dust or the fairy dust that God used to, to make creation or something like that. But I think that's why Paul finishes verse 16 the way he does. He finishes verse 16 saying, all things were created through him, and here's the key phrase, and 
for him. Uh, see, God is, the, God is the one that everything else exists for. Whoever God is, he is the one who's worshipped. He's the one who's praised. He's the one who's exalted. And what Paul is saying is that God, the God who's worshipped, the God who's praised, the God who we exist for, that is Jesus Christ. He is the one that we, that we worship. And I think that that might be most fundamentally what it means when we say that life is found in Jesus. Life is found in Jesus because he's God. Life is found in Jesus because he is the author of life. And what that means uh, for, for us finding life in him is that if Jesus made us, if he created us, then he is the one who gets to define who we are, and he is the one who gets to define what our lives should be for. That we come alive when we live within the boundaries and the limits that Jesus has set for us. I've traveled um, a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and there's two things I noticed that were, were interesting to me. They, they presented sort of a contrast, and I, I thought this was, this was um, th- the fact that I saw this in such a close proximity of time just felt like it was just, it was God's gift to us. Um, I'm driving down the, the interstate, and I look up, and there's a big billboard, and what the billboard is for is it is people uh, saying that they don't believe that 18-wheelers should have speed limiters placed on them by the government. So in other words, there's, apparently there's somebody somewhere who drives an 18-wheeler, and they feel like they ought to be able to drive as fast as they want to drive. They don't want somebody from the outside coming in and telling them how fast they should be able to drive. So that's the one, the one thing I saw. Now, here's the other thing I saw. I also, while I was on my travels, I took an Uber, and I actually took an Uber in an electric car. And the guy who was driving this car had intentionally set a limit on his speed. He had set his car to where it would only go nine miles an hour over the speed limit. What's he trying to do? He's trying to protect himself. He's trying to keep himself from going too fast and getting a ticket and and getting in trouble with the law. So here's the contrast. You've got one group of people who sees the limit, who sees the boundary, who sees the technology to limit vehicles, and they see it as a problem. They see it as something that is to be disdained. They, they see it as something that is constricting. But then you have another person who sees the same technology, the same limit, the same boundary, and they see it as a gift. They see it as something that's freeing. They see it as something that's helpful. And so when we think about the fact that we were made by Jesus, that we were created by him, what we have to realize is that that comes with certain limits. That comes with certain boundaries. But whether we will see those limits as good things or bad things, as restrictive things or as life-giving things, has everything to do with how we conceive of Jesus. Do we think of Jesus as someone who is trying to constrict us? Do 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 we conceive of Jesus as someone whose job in life is to make us less ourselves? That when he comes in with his boundaries and limits and laws and rules, that, that, that he's actually trying to uh, take our freedom? Is that how we conceive of Jesus? No. If Jesus is our maker, if he's the one who created us, then he knows what is best for us. If Jesus created us, then he knows what will help us thrive in this life, survive in this life, not crash and burn in this life. Jesus does not exist to restrict us or place heavy burdens on our backs. Jesus does for us 
what we cannot do for ourselves. Second this morning, we live through his sustaining life. We live through his sustaining life. Verse 17 says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If God removed his power, everything that we know would completely fall apart. If God removed his sustaining hand, life as we know it would completely disintegrate and we would cease to be. Paul is teaching us that God upholds our lives moment by moment. And here's the deal. Even if we don't want to know God, even if we don't want to depend upon God, we can't help it. We depend upon God whether we want to or not. And Paul is saying that God who upholds all things, that God who is holding the universe together, that's Jesus. Jesus holds all things together. And so whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we experience our moment-by-moment existence because Jesus gives it to us. See, we are so much more dependent upon him than we realize. Right now, as you're, as you're taking in breaths, as the sun outside is still shining, as gravity is holding us in our seats, as the earth spins at about 1,000 miles an hour, the only reason that it's not completely all falling apart is because Jesus is holding life together. Um, this week, they uh, started a project in my neighborhood where they're going to repave all the roads. And... Um, there's this huge machine. The first thing they have to do before they repave them all, they have to rip them all up. So there's this huge machine that's going down the road and just churning up all the asphalt and spitting it up into this dump truck, you know, up ahead. And I, I just find it kind of comical um, this week. I, I pulled out of my, my driveway and I, and I passed this. I mean, you got to get the picture. This machine is like the size of my house. You know, this thing is like humongous. It, and it, there's no stopping it. Like it is, this thing is just, just, just doing its thing. Um, I found it so comical that there was this guy who, who was, you know, a worker who was, man, he looked like he was just intently focused. Like, he looked like he was giving it his all, walking alongside of this machine. And I thought about it. I was like, man, you know, if, if he goes home to his wife and she asks him, hey, what would you do today? He might say, I, oh, we ripped up the asphalt in this neighborhood. But in all reality, this guy wasn't doing a thing. This guy could have put his hands on that machine and he could have pushed with all his might and he could have tried as hard as he wanted to to try to help this thing along, but he wasn't doing anything. And so many times in life, the reason that you and I are burned out, anxious, worried, is because we think it's our responsibility to hold our lives together. We think it's our responsibility to keep all the plates spinning. We forget that Jesus is doing just fine holding the universe together. And so many times we're frantically trying so hard to control things that are out of our control. And it burns us out. It wears us out. So again, how do we conceive of Jesus? Do we see Jesus as someone who drains us? Do we see Jesus as someone who needs us to keep him up? Do we see Jesus as someone who's sort of waiting on us to show up so that he can figure out how he needs to live and survive and thrive in this world? No, if if all things hold together 
because of him, then so far from him being dependent upon us, we are completely dependent upon him. We are the ones who drain and drain and drain and drain. But because Jesus is God, he pours out of the infinite ocean of his divine life that empowers and holds us together. There is something so freeing, something so relieving about finally admitting that we are not in control, about finally admitting that there is somebody that's holding this world together, but it's not me. See, it's not if, it's not if we will be dependent upon Jesus. That's not the question of life. It is will we acknowledge our dependence upon Jesus. It's not if. We are. Whether we want to or not, we are depending upon Jesus. It's whether or not we will acknowledge our dependence upon Jesus. And when we acknowledge it, he gives us rest. He gives us peace. Third today, we live through his empowering, empowering life. We live through his empowering life. The beginning of verse 18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the of the body, the church. So how does the image of a body with a head, how does that image, the image of a body with a head, reflect the relationship between Jesus and the church? Well, just think for a minute about the human body. The human body is an incredibly meticulous instrument. I mean, we have body parts that then have parts that then have parts that make up those parts, right? We know how meticulous the human body is because there are there are people whose job it is to be a specialist and all they do is focus on one little part of the body so we understand that the body is a very intricate and meticulous thing but there's something unique and special about the head right the head is that part of you that leads the rest of your body the the head is what controls the rest of the parts of your body. And so what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to say that is what it's like to, ha- to see this relationship between the church and Jesus. That Jesus is the head of the church, meaning that he is the leader of the church. That Jesus is the head of the church, meaning that he is the one who pours vital life down into the church. See, listen, you can lose a toe and still go on living. You can lose an ear and still go on living. You can lose lots of your parts of your body and still go on living, but you cannot lose your head and still go on living. And so what that means is that a church is totally drawing its vital life from its head. That if a a church no longer has Jesus Christ at the center of it, it ceases to be a church. And if there are any aspects of our church at Palmetto Shore Church, if there's any aspects or ministries of our church that aren't drawing its life from Jesus, then we will inevitably die. You can live without a toe. You can live without a finger. You cannot live without a head. And what that means is that our most fundamental calling as a church, like there's so many things that we, we ought to be doing, right? There's so many things that are on the list of things that churches should be doing. But there is one thing that is so fundamental that that it cannot be left aside, it cannot be done without, and that is simply to stay connected to Jesus. Jesus is not making things impossible for us. He is not rolling out some crazy, uh, uh, untenable obstacle course for the church in the world. No, Jesus is saying, you stay connected to me, and I will be the power in this world. I will be the one who vitally moves the church forward in this world. I love in, at the beginning of Acts, when the church is launched at the beginning of the book of Acts, it says that the people were just 
committing themselves regularly to the Bible, to the scriptures, to prayer, to fellowship with one another. And what it says is that it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. See what that means is they were committed, they were focused on staying connected to Jesus. And Jesus was the one pouring out the power into the life of their church. So, again, how do you conceive of Jesus? You know, I, I was wondering, thinking about this some this week. Um, you know, it can be easy to look around and see the, the challenges, the cultural challenges that we have today to the church. And think, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe Jesus hasn't given us the correct orders. Maybe, maybe, maybe we need to invent what the church ought to be in the world today. Maybe we need to figure out what we're supposed to be doing. But then we remember, no, he's the head. He is the one that for the last 2,000 years, he has been pushing the church forward in the world, and Jesus is not sweating. He's not feeling overwhelmed. He's not worried about what's going on in the culture. Guys, there has always been cultural challenges to the gospel in the world. There's never been a time or a place for the church where there hasn't been cultural challenges to the gospel. And time and time again, as the church has remained vitally connected to Jesus, Jesus has surged the church forward. And here's what this also means. What it means is that nobody else, nobody, nobody else has to be the head of the church. The pastor is not the head of the church. There's no, you know, particular family in the church that's, you know, important, that, that is the head of the church. There's, no, there's nobody who gives a lot of money who's the head of the church. There's no person, leader, ministry, team, group who is the head of the church. No, Jesus is the head of the church, and we all benefit from resting in his good leadership. This is what Jesus promised. He promised. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And that means if we remain connected to him, we're going to look up in 10,000 years and we are going to marvel at all the things that Jesus did in and through his church. So we live through his empowering life. Fourth, this morning, we live through his resurrection life. We live through his resurrection life. The second half of verse 18 says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he launched an entirely new creation. Uh, what, what Paul is trying to show us is that Jesus, this Son of God, this eternal Son of God, he is both the author of the original creation that every single one of us in here, we've received our creation life from him, but Jesus is also the author of the new creation. That God is doing this other thing where he is birthing out a new creation and that the first artifact, the first thing that we get to see of this new creation is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, when Paul uh, calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead, it's similar to another place where he calls Jesus the first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits of the resurrection. Um, the fir first fruits, you know, if, if you're a farmer or you own land, you have, a, you have crops. Um, the first fruits would be, you know, you go out after the um, stuff starts to sprout up, and you take just a few things. You take just a little bit of the crop, and you try it out. And if it's good, then you're happy, because then you can expect that the rest of the crop will be good. And if it's bad, you know, it's not so great, because if those first fruits are bad, then the rest is probably going to be bad, too. 
Now, um, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm not, really a, not really a farmer type, not really a gardening type. I don't even really like to do flowers. You know, I'm kind of like, I'm not really a dirt person in general. So let me try to put this on a, an analogy that's a little bit more down to earth for, for anybody in here who's like me who doesn't do the farming thing. I've learned at my house that when I bake cookies, the longevity, the life of that batch of cookies is not very long. That once a few people get the smell of those cookies, they, they will be gone shortly. So I feel like it's my fatherly prerogative to try a few of these cookies first when I, whenever I bake them. And here's what I've learned is, you know, if I eat that first cookie and it is delicious, and then I eat a second and a third cookie and they are all delicious, I can know that the entire batch is going to be delicious. I don't have to eat every single cookie to know that they are great. No, if I just have one or two or three and they're so good, then I can trust that the rest will be good as well. Here's what, what Paul is, is saying to us this morning, that Jesus Christ's resurrection is actually just the first of many. He's just the first fruits. He's just the first one of all the other people that are going to be resurrected in him. And if I could put it this way without being too sacrilegious, anyone, is, who, anyone who is, quote, of his batch, of the group, who have put their faith in him, who are found in him, will be resurrected just like he was. And so here's the deal, guys. What it means that life is found in Jesus does not just mean that Jesus helps us get through the day. What it means that life is found in Jesus does not just mean that Jesus gives us purpose or peace in this world. What it means that life is found in Jesus is literally that Jesus is our hope for a resurrection. That if we have put our faith in him, when he got up on the third day, got out of the tomb and got up on the third day on, on Easter morning, that was a preview of what will happen to anyone else who puts their faith in him. He is just simply the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one of many who will come after him. So I don't know how you conceive of Jesus. I don't know how you think about Jesus. But Jesus is not the kind of person that kicks you when you're down. Jesus is not the kind of person who comes to people who are struggling and who can't seem to figure out their life and who are kind of bombing out at everything and just mocks them and belittles them because they can't get their stuff together. Jesus is the kind of person who shows up in our life, in our world, when we cannot help ourselves, when there's nothing that we could do to fix ourselves, when we wouldn't even make the right choices even if we knew they were right choices. And he raises us up from the dead. Jesus shows up in the lives of dead-hearted people who hate God, and he gives them life. If Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, literally, if Jesus himself is the beginning of a new creation, then we have indestructible hope in Jesus. We must never believe that the world is as bad off as everyone says it is. We have seen Jesus literally go down into the absolute worst that life has to offer. We saw Jesus go down under death by the wrath of God. And then we saw him come back up again, radiant and triumphant. And that means no matter what you experience, no matter how difficult life is for you, no matter how many alarm bells are going off and people are screaming about how the world is going to hell in a handbasket, we have hope in our resurrected Savior. Fifth this morning, we live through his mediating life. We live through his mediating life. 
Verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, here's what Paul's saying. He's saying that the fullness of God, all that it means to be God, dwelled in the man Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus Christ is a man. He is a human man, and he is as human as any other human being has ever been. He's not sort of some weird quasi-man. He's not Superman. He is as human as any human has ever been. But here's what Paul's saying, that the one person, Jesus Christ, possesses two natures. He is both fully man and he is fully God. He's not part man and part God. The one person, Jesus Christ, possesses two natures, and therefore he is completely God and he is completely man. And I label this a heading uh, that we live through his mediating life because the reason Jesus assumed our humanity was to become a mediator between God and man. Uh, Jesus becomes a go-between between God and man. And a, and a mediator is someone who has to have some relationship to both parties, has to be able to talk, has to be able to connect to both sides. And the reason that Jesus assumed our humanity is so that he has eternally connected to God. He has eternally been the image of the invisible God. And now he entered in, stepped into history so that he could connect to us. <clears throat> uh, usually as technology advances, there's a stage where the item you bought uh, kind of phases out. But, you know, you still want to use it, you know. And, but for some reason, it just doesn't, it doesn't connect in. You know, it's like... Computers without USB devices or whatever it is. I mean, you can get the picture, right? It's like you, you want your thing to be able to talk to the cord or the thing that you need to plug it into, but they don't, they don't fit anymore. So, so what do you do? You go out and you buy a contraption that, that's an adapter. But for that adapter to work, it has to speak to both sides. It has to, it has to be able to plug in on that side and then plug in on this side for, for it to work. And what Paul is saying is the reason Jesus assumed our humanity is so that he could be a mediator between God and man, that he could create a channel between God and man, that in the one person, Jesus Christ, God and man would be reunited again. That in this one person, God and man dwell together. Um, Commenting on this thought, this verse and this thought, the old, uh, long time ago dead pastor John Gill wrote, There is a fullness of grace in Jesus. There is a fullness of all light and life, of wisdom and strength, of peace, joy, comfort, and of all the promises of grace. And it is God's goodwill and sovereign pleasure that all grace should come through Christ, which greatly enhances and sets forth the glory of Christ as mediator. This is what we mean when we say that life is found in Jesus. Yes, life is found in Jesus because he's the author of life. Yes, life is found in Jesus because he's holding all things together. Yes, life is found in Jesus because he is the resurrection from the dead. But life is found in Jesus because anything good that would come from God, any grace that would come from God, anything that you and I would ever want from God must come to us through Jesus. He is the only channel 
He is the only way. He is the only mediator between God and man. And so maybe you're here today, and your conception of Jesus is that he is a taker. Maybe you feel like Jesus just wants stuff from you. He wants your time, and he wants your money, and he wants your talents, and he wants everything from you. Is that how we are to conceive of Jesus, that he's just a taker, that he just wants from us? No, if it is true that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus if it's true that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus, then it means that Jesus doesn't need anything from us. He's God. What does God need? No, he doesn't need anything from us. He's not waiting on us. He's not hoping that we'll give him something. The reason that Jesus assumed our humanity was not to take anything from us. It's not because he needed something from us. The reason Jesus assumed our humanity was completely and solely to give to us. He graced our humanity with his divinity. Jesus said this about himself. He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. I did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think about that. Jesus did not take on our humanity. Jesus did not step into history. Jesus did not assume what it means to be human because he needed anything. He stepped into history. He took on our humanity because we needed everything. We needed his fullness. We needed a channel between God and man. We needed a mediator. So Jesus is not trying to take from us. He is God's designated channel for receiving grace, goodness, mercy. And the reason we stay tuned into Jesus, the reason we stay connected to Jesus, the reason we stay locked into Jesus is because everything that we would ever want that is good must come through, through him. So maybe you're thinking, okay, why would he do all this? Like, why would Jesus do all this? Why would he give and give and give? Why, after making the first creation and then we screwed it up, why would he then establish a second creation? Why, after us having a good relationship with God and us turning away from God, us rebelling against God, why would he come back and establish that connection again? Why would he be such a giver? Why would he give and give and give and give when he actually needs nothing? Well, the answer comes at the end of verse 18. The end of verse 18 says that in everything, he might be preeminent. Jesus giving and giving and giving and giving means that Jesus deserves all the glory. Jesus deserves to have first place. Jesus deserves to have first place in our lives, in this world, and most especially in our church. Uh, you, you, may, you may or may not know this, but our vision here as a, as a church is to know Jesus and make all of life about him. To know Jesus and make all of life about him. Why is, that our, why is that our vision? That's our vision because all of life is already about Jesus. All of this exists by him and through him and for him. And so our job is just simply to align to what he has created us for. There is no aspect of our life that we cannot point to and say, I get this from Jesus. There is nothing in my life that I can't point to and say, the reason, this is, the reason I have this life, the reason I have these things, the reason I have God 
is because of Jesus. And so we gladly desire to know him and make all of life about him. We live for Jesus because the entirety of our existence is found in him. And that leads to our our final aspect of the life of Jesus for today. Lastly, we live through his perfect life. We live through his perfect life. Uh, At this time, I want to invite you to take out your communion elements that you have there at your seats. And we're going to do something a little little unusual. We're actually going to take the Lord's Supper as a part of the sermon, as a part of the message. Because as we cover this last verse, verse 20, uh, I think it'll be meaningful and powerful to hold these elements and look at them and, yes, listen, listen to what I'm saying, but also to, to see the visible picture that Jesus has given us of his body and his blood. So holding, holding the bread, holding the cup... Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, Verse 20 out of this whole section explains why we need life in the first place. Why is it that we're void of life? Why is it that life is elusive? And the reason why is because we have made ourselves enemies of God. In our sin, we looked at this God who, who, who made us, who gave us life, who holds all things together, and we have all said, no, thank you. I'd rather not live for you. I'd rather not worship you. I'd rather not get in line with the way you designed me, what you created me for. And we made ourselves enemies of God, rebels against his kingdom. And so this morning, I just want to think for a minute about the perfect life of Jesus. The perfect life. This this verse, in verse 20, it ends talking about his blood, making peace by the blood of his cross. What blood could cover our sins? What blood could make us right with God? What blood poured out could actually bring us back to God again? Only the blood of someone who was perfect, only the blood of someone who's innocent. If Jesus had sinned once, if he had had one blemish, if he had had one fault, if he had ever stepped outside of God's law, he couldn't have been our substitute. He couldn't be a sacrifice to save us from our sins. But Jesus lived a perfect life, and then he offered that life up for us that we could have peace with God. But here's the other thing that it the perfect life of Jesus means that when we place our faith in him, he actually gives us his perfection. That if you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus, you stand before God as perfect. Your standing before God is not based on what you have done. Your standing before God is not based on what you haven't done. You are clothed in the perfection of Christ. And so holding these elements, holding the bread and holding the cup, we get the perfect picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate giver of life. Yes, Jesus laid down his life. Yes, he offered up himself as a sacrifice. But these elements that he gave, he he wanted us to take these. He wanted us to regularly remember 
him through these particular elements. And it's no accident that the elements he chose were food, that it was bread, that it was a cup, that we would be reminded every time we took this that there is one source of life. There is one who keeps us alive. There is one in whom life is found, and that is Jesus Christ. So looking at these elements, we, we see the bread, and we see the cup, and we're reminded that life is found in Jesus because God is found in Jesus. Life is found in Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead. And life is found in Jesus because out of his goodness, out of his mercy, out of his own sovereign pleasure, he stepped into history and assumed our humanity, lived a perfect life, offered it up on the cross for us, and now grants his perfection to sinful people like us. So on the night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. God, this morning we fully acknowledge that both as, as a church and as individuals, we are completely dependent upon Jesus Christ. He is the author of life. He is the one who gives us perfection before you. God, make us a people who do not seek life in anything else. Lord, that, that leaving here today, we would forsake trying to find life anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. Lord, make us a people who are hungry to feast upon Jesus, to feast upon his body, to feast upon his blood, to take him in completely and fully that he might be preeminent in our lives. God, we acknowledge that Jesus deserves all the glory. Jesus deserves all the praise. Jesus deserves for us to make all of life about him because we receive all of our life from him. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for being so willing to open your life up to us that you would give us a mediator, that there would be a mediator between God and man, your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to love him, trust him, and stay connected to him as the highest priority of our life. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.